If you do have a Bible and you're familiar with where it is, Matthew chapter 5, you might want to go a little bit before that, because we'll start in the few verses prior for reference, picking it up in verse 18. Our primary text is the first 12 verses of chapter 5, but for reference, look at chapter 4, verse 18 with me, and we'll read from there. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Why? For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him. All sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, we're praying to you from London, and I know you know that. Where things are busy, and the rhythm of the city becomes so underlying, we don't even hear it anymore. It's there with our pulse and our breathing. And because of that, our eyes are always aware. Pickpockets and crazy people and dangerous things we could step in. And here we come into a place where we recognize we are at a weakness, at a deficit to settle our minds and hearts and focus on one thing without constantly looking about us. And in a room like this, we could settle in in such a way that even in a moment, even in this prayer, we could be wandering off. 
Or we could worse even be picking and choosing the things we hear to find those things we think we better tell someone else because they're not getting with the program. Instead of sitting and listening ourselves to hear you speak. But I pray today you would break through everything. Captivate us in your word. Draw us in in such a way, Lord, that your word bursts open and comes alive before us. And we are there. Seeing your call in our lives. Overwhelmed with gratitude. And I pray today that you would do a magnificent thing. Speak to each one of us exactly where we're at. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need encouragement. But today, speak life and peace. Purify our hearts and minds. And if there be any who have yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let today be the day that they say yes to you. So we commit ourselves to you now. Come upon me, Lord. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would appear. And come upon me that I would be the tool, not the craftsman. As you have your way now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. If I were to entitle this, I might entitle it, Who in the world am I now? In verses 18 through 25 of chapter 4, what we read is the calling of four fishermen. Men who know how to throw the nets to the bottom, pull up everything, and then sort through it later. That was a simple task, and now Jesus turns that very simple task onto humankind, and he says, it's your turn now. To do that with men. Christianity was never called to skim the top. We're not fly fishing. But to reach to the men and women with the greatest need. To plunge into the darkest depths. But to plunge in for people who are aware and need that help. And to grab that net. And who better than men with calloused hands and strong backs who can handle smell and crazy people like the fishermen. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. So what we read then is what they do is the very same thing, only with people. They bring the people that in the eyes of society were the bottom dwellers. Now, we don't see that as Christians, but understand society, especially an economic-driven society, will certainly see so. Who is that? That's the powerless, that's the possessed, that's the paralytic, that's the basket case, that's the emotional, you name it. That's what they're grabbing and that's what they're bringing. And it's a very simple mindset. If I could get them to Jesus, he could fix them. And it was the most effective ministry in the history of mankind. And they weren't theologians. Well, they were experts in God because they walked with him, not because they read his books. Or I should say they read books by other people who wrote about him. They knew him personally. They walked with him. They could tell you what Jesus ate. They could tell you what upset his stomach. They could tell you what he's like when he's tired. They could tell you what jokes make him laugh and which ones don't. They could tell you those things, those places where Jesus constantly stumbles or bangs his head. 
They can tell you about those things that are pet peeves, like don't eat with your mouth open around Jesus. Those kind of things, because Jesus is human here, and I want you to recognize that. I mean, the kind of things, to be honest, that may not have necessarily an entire effect on humanity from, a, from an eternal perspective, from the kind of things where someone says they claim to be an expert because they've read books about some scholarly person who's never met him, and, and they would look at him and go, that's rubbish. Let me tell you what this person is like around the needy. Let me tell you what it's like to go into the darkest depths and never, never forfeit your light. To cross over, but never not bring the cross over. To reach into the filthiest of muck, but never forfeit your purity. What an amazing God. And these men were not. They were too simple to be brilliant in the eyes of men. But because of that, they were too brilliant to be stupid to fall into the traps of men as well. And so here they were with a very simple hands-on approach. Get them to Jesus, let them fix them. Get them to Jesus, let them fix them. They went to get the credit just as much as the net never got credit. The fishermen always claim the credit. You have ever talked to them for catching their fish. They don't say this is my magic net, although they may say that there's some form of good luck behind it. And understand now at the end of this chapter, what we realize is we are introduced to a new term we have not seen in the New Testament so far, and that is the term multitudes. It's the first time we see it in Scripture here now in chapter 4 towards the end. It's a multitude of people now in verse 25, the last verse of chapter 4, where it says great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, that's the ten Roman cities to the east of the Jordan, Jerusalem, that's its capital, of, of Israel, and then Judea, the region it sits in, in that area beyond the Jordan, just south of Decapolis. Here's the problem. Within a handful of verses, what we have seen is a multitude of people changed. Changed in the eyes of the world in the most spectacular and profound ways. You see, what happened is, is we, you know, Sam and I and Dominic, we grabbed people. You know, Mike and I, we grabbed people because this is all we knew. So it's like, oh, you're crazy? That's awesome. And the crazier a person was, the more needy they were, the more scary they were, the more difficult they were, the more excited we got. Because the need was that much more obvious so that when they changed, everybody knew it. It wasn't like we were looking to recruit celebrities. We were looking to recruit gifted orators or, you know, gifted, high-profile religious personalities. We went for people so that when God did something, people knew it. That was it. You know, what's interesting is the rest of the world will shy away from the needy. We as Christians should get our hands rubbing the moment we think, oh, God's going to do something good here. And now all of a sudden we did and we grabbed people. Bruno and I, we grabbed a paralytic because we knew the smell of fish. We could handle a person who has gone to the toilet several times in the place they are because they're paralytic and they can't get up. We were more equipped than the people with the cleanest hands. And I think one of the biggest problems with Christianity, and I'm not trying to say that like us and them, we're all part of it and we're still part of that, is that our hands are too clean in the wrong areas and too dirty in the others. And so here it is. We grabbed him. We, we kind of held our breath a little bit and kind of turned our head, but we carried the guy there. And when we got him, because we just knew that he's not going to need this cot forever. 
And then it was Martin. And Martin and Hugo said, you know what? They're, they're speaking French to each other, so no one knows. But they're saying, we're going to grab that guy, and we're going to grab his chains. And he's like, Bleh! and he's a demoniac, right? He's possessed. And here's the point of it, is that somehow it's like we've made, like, you have to bring this book, and you have to chant in Latin, and you have to grab this holy water, whatever that is. And it's like, where in the world did we get this? We got it from Hollywood. If we read the book, we actually see that it really isn't. The Exorcist would be a very short film. What would happen is the guy could, the girl could spin around and do whatever, you know, go green or whatever, and whatever. And the guy walks in and goes, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're out of here. And the movie's over, the rolling credits, and everyone's going to get their money back. They're like, this was supposed to be two hours of this. Please hear me in this. All we knew was Jesus was the answer. He was not a means to an end. He was the end. And we got him there, and he changed. We got him there, and he changed. We got him there, and they changed. That was it. And there was a multitude of people now going, who in the world am I? Now imagine there's Jesus and there's a pile of crutches and there's a pile of chains and there's a pile of cots that will never be needed again. Wheelchairs by the dozens never be needed again. Piles and piles of drugs and pornography that people will never rely on again. Bottles stacked up to the ceiling that you'll never need to see again. But that problem was, is that's what I'm known for. I was the violent guy. You could have been the whatever. The floozy. The crazy person. The out of control maniac. Whatever you were known for. But now you've encountered Jesus. And as you've encountered Jesus, here's the problem. The only thing you know at this moment is two things. One is, you used to be this, you're not anymore. And the other is, Jesus is the difference. Those are the only two things you knew. The question is, who in the world am I now? So Jesus does something interesting, because by the time we get to chapter 5 now, what we see is that two groups emerge. But we have it now as a multitude. And if Jesus doesn't do something here, all we'll be known for is what we were. That's the problem. You're known for your tombstone. Hey, man, I'm an ex-gangbanger for Jesus, man. Congratulations, but what are you now? I don't know, man. I'm like ex-gangbanger. I'm like, yeah, stop getting your identity from your tombstone. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that the moment you were in Christ, and if you continue to be, you continue to be, you are a new creation. And a new creation tells me that the old person, by the way, it tells us that the old has passed away. It's dead. And if we do not start to move forward with Jesus, what we'll find is, is that we'll be more tempted to go back to the other thing because we're so darn familiar with it. So all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, you know what? I may actually have legs that work. And the, I was brought here and I didn't have legs that work. But then, you know, Jesus touched me and blink, out came these legs. And now here I am, I'm jumping and leaping and praising God. But the moment I walk out of here, I'm going to be really kind of people are going to know me for that. And now I'm going to have to be responsible. And I might have to get a job. And there's all these other crazy things. Or maybe I'd be better if I just sat down and pretended like my legs didn't work. But notice how this starts in chapter 5. Because if you don't read the first two verses, you'll claim all of this for yourself without seeing the requirements. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. All of a sudden, two groups emerge. 
A moment ago, there was just the multitude. But the moment Jesus walks up the mountain and sits down. Listen, here's a strange idea. Back in those days, when a teacher taught, he sat down, everybody else stood up. Kind of a, yeah, you're thinking, what in the world? Are you crazy? See, nobody falls asleep that way. Because if they do, everybody knows it. All of a sudden, you start seeing them rocking like that, right? You know. And you realize that could really create a domino effect if the person goes on for a while. And by the way, they taught for four or five hours. Just kind of letting you know. And that'll make this seem very short. So Jesus walks up and he sits down and you realize that Jesus is going to teach. And as he's going to teach, what we read is his disciples came to him. Please don't miss this. Because if your mind starts to, you know, you kind of create this image, oh, there are like 12 guys step forward. You're missing the fact that Jesus, first of all, hasn't called the 12. And you're missing the fact that Jesus had a large group of people called disciples. The word disciple, mathitikas in the Greek, it simply means student. It's all it means. <clears throat> Notice, by the way, they weren't called disciples because they were baptized publicly. Because they joined a church or they had some form of membership. Well, the one thing that identified them here was their willingness to hear Jesus' words. That was the difference. But here becomes the problem. Because it doesn't say that the multitude of disciples, and by the way, just because you're a disciple or in the school of Jesus doesn't mean you won't drop out. By John 6, verse 66, we read many of his disciples no longer walk with him. So don't tell me that you can't. Well, I'm a disciple. That's good enough because there are going to be people that are going to be in the school and they're going to drop out when Jesus starts saying the hard things like sacrifice. So understand Jesus steps up and as he sits down, disciples step forward. That means that there are other people in the multitude that aren't stepping forward. And I don't want you to miss that. They may have been the people that were paralytic or possessed or powerless in some other way. They may have been those that were emotional basket cases. They may, may have been those who were in some way in debt or distress or, or, or in some form of deep depression. And they were brought to Jesus. And listen, listen, listen. And somewhere in that, Jesus did touch them. And somewhere in that, they did change. But that was all they wanted. And because that was all they wanted, listen to the difference. Jesus was a means to the end. He wasn't the end. So what happened is it's like, you know what? I've got an issue. And if I can bring it to Jesus and he can change it, that's all that matters. It isn't all that matters. As a disciple, as a, serv- as a servant, as somebody who wants to see God change people, I know if I can get him to Jesus, he can change you. But please hear me in this. I don't want just Jesus to give you another leg. I don't want Jesus just to sort of get you out of this problem you're in or somehow in it, this God will wipe out your warrant or somehow in it, you think you might be pregnant or you might have a disease or you think you really offended someone or someone wants to kill you. And if maybe I could bring you to Jesus, he's going to sort of slather some form of grace all over you and things are going to be cool now and you'll have no consequences and everything's going to be cool. Well, listen, Jesus sits down and at this point, there's going to be a big difference because from this point on, the message is not to the multitude. And unfortunately, young and I walk with Christ. That's how I looked at this text. I kind of looked at it as all these people are saved and they're all transformed in so many ways. And then Jesus just walks among them and says, hey, you used to be paralyzed. And hey, you used to be this. And you used to have this trouble. And you were blind, but now you can see. And now you're so blessed. But he's not saying that to everyone. He's saying that to those who are willing to come to make Jesus the end and not the means to it. 
And we love to claim the promises of God without the requirements. It's amazing. That's like not working somewhere, but waiting for their paycheck. So we're like, okay, you know what? I know what it says. Resist the devil and he will flee. No, it doesn't. Let me tell you what it says. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. If you don't get that first part, what are you actually resisting him from? Submitting to God, that's the problem. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Direct your paths, right? Make your path straight, however you see it in your verse. What do we like that last part? I even seen things. People have gone like, oh, and he will make your path straight. It's like, and, and from what and? He's like, I need you to trust me first. I need you to not lean upon your own understanding. I need you to actually acknowledge me when you're looking at something. Then I'm going to make your path straight. Here's my favorite. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will do what? Give you the desires of your heart. Now listen, let me ask you. Is delighting in yourself and the Lord the end or the means? Because then, to be honest, if it's the means, then it's that you're actually not delighting in the Lord. You're like, well, I just know I, what I really want is a Bentley. So, since that's the desire of my heart, I'm going to now delight myself in the Lord. Lord, I delight in you. I delight in you. Where's my Bentley? I delight in you. Where's my Bentley? What's that? You're not delighting in the Lord. And don't you think the Lord knows when he's being played? Hey, look, you can play me. And I've been played. You can play others. But you ain't playing God. And you could talk about all kinds of things, but in the end of it all, it's going to come out sooner or later where things are. And God's not fooled. And he sits down and his disciples come forward. And here, Jesus, all he had to do was sit down. And it's amazing how that changed the group into two. And there are those like, yes, I really want God's blessings, but I'm not really interested in what he has to say. Or if I'm going to hear what he has to say, I'll be like, yeah, 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 but that's probably for someone else. Or, well, maybe that's just the pastor's opinion, but it actually isn't an opinion at all. It's just a verse. <laughs> You're like, yeah, but I don't know if I really agree with that because, you know, then I have to change. Listen, don't ever expect your flesh nature to agree with Scripture. That's why it has to be mortified. Your flesh nature will never convert. So Listen. Jesus sits down, and as he sits down, he begins to teach. He sees the multitude. Interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus deals with the multitude, he's busy healing them. 12.15, he sees the great multitude, he heals them all. 15.30, they brought then the lame the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, and they laid them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. In Matthew 19, verse 2, the great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. They came. The multitude doesn't have a problem trying to get touched by Jesus. But his disciples, on the other hand, sit while he teaches. And his disciples actually want to be changed than more than their issue or their circumstance. So this message from chapters 5 through 7 that we call the Sermon on the Mount or the Mount of Beatitudes, it's for disciples. It's for people that are, that are more than just, I'm going to take whatever I want, like Jesus is a salad bar, and leave the rest behind. What's interesting, it's his disciples in chapter 10. He gave power over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal all kinds of sickness and disease. 
It's his disciples that had the privilege of feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 in this book. It's his disciples that Jesus makes clear he's the Messiah to. It's his disciples that Jesus makes clear his mission to die on the cross for. It's his disciples that get the donkey and watch Jesus and proclaim him as he starts to descend on Palm Sunday while the multitudes cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's the same multitude that, by the way, we read then will come with torches and clubs to arrest him. And there will be the multitude that will say, Crucify him. And they want Barabbas free in his stead. While his disciples, on the other hand, will see him in the garden. We'll see him arrested. We'll see him die. But we'll also see him risen. And we'll spend 40 days with him after his resurrection, being taught and prepared to change the world. So it starts with this. It all depends on what I'm going to do next. Will I continue to come to Jesus? Or will I be just content with him changing my initial issue? And I guess it boils down to this. Am I teachable? Am I teachable to be changed by Jesus? When I know Jesus is going to say something I disagree with because I don't want to do it? I have kids. I know what that's like. There are things the Lord's going to do that are going to be a chore. By the virtue of the word, it's not going to be something I want to do. But I know it's good. In Luke chapter 17, 12 lepers come to Jesus wanting to be cleansed. 10 lepers, I'm sorry, come to be Jesus, come to Jesus to be cleansed. Of the 10 lepers that come to be cleansed, then they show themselves to the priests as they're supposed to. One of them returns. And Jesus is actually kind of dumbfounded. He looks and he sees one guy out of 10. That's 10%. That's a simple math. And he looks at it and he says, where are the other nine? This isn't Jesus being a pastor and wanting a bigger church. So he looks and goes, why didn't you bring friends with you? These were 10 guys that were personally touched by him. And he looks and he goes, of all these 10 people that have been cleansed, where is the gratitude of the other nine? This last week, I had the privilege of, um, I don't know if you know, they found one of our guitars. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Well, it's, it's still in evidence. We can't play it yet. But uh, they've dis- they discovered one of them was uh, for sale at one of the local pawn shops. We could be very thankful for those pawn shops. And uh, although, to be honest, thank you, Dick Nevis and the Camden Guitar people who actually discovered it and texted me at midnight to tell me. Uh, anyways, in... And, and they, they came. What was interesting about it was that, and I'll be honest, get, getting to speak with this particular constable about this, who then took on our case again. I uh, got the beautiful privilege of sitting with this, this fellow for a couple hours. And he started to tell me a story. And it was interesting because, of course, it's going to break into the Lord. And he started telling me about his background. He's kind of half Irish and half English, which means, of course, that, you know, when they were in Ireland, he went to a Catholic church. And he says, I, I don't get it. I mean, I said in the church, everyone turned around and said, what are you doing here? You're like one quarter our age. And uh, and then he went to this other church because they moved to England. And, and then he went and he moved to a third church. The second church he kind of connected with was kind of a Baptist church in the center of England. And then the third church, he moved to Manchester, and it was one of those churches, he says, where everybody kind of went crazy. And he said, it was one of the craziest experiences I've ever had. And he goes, and I'm a police officer. You know? So when I say crazy, I mean, I mean crazy. And he says, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out why people were doing this. And I, I'm like, I would never want to be there again. That's the only thing I knew from that experience. 
But the thing that he said that touched me so much in all of this, he says, the thing that affected him the most is that he goes, as he was sitting there, he said to himself, he couldn't understand where if Jesus really, and these are fresh words trying to come out of his mouth, if he really did like die for our sins and then really did raise again, why his people wouldn't be more grateful? I thought that was a really interesting perspective. And I, you know, I was sharing that story with, with Daniel, actually. I don't want to say it because I don't want to embarrass Daniel Taylor. But I was sharing this story, and, and it was his perspective that I actually thought was really profound. And he said, you know, if we spend all our time asking for stuff from God, how does that sound grateful? And I get the idea that in the end of it all, those lepers, those other nine, probably will come back to Jesus, but only when they need something. But Jesus didn't heal them or cleanse them from their leprosy so they could just be leper-free or leprosy-free. He cleansed them to be with him. So listen, Jesus now, he's about to begin to speak. He starts to speak these beautiful, profound words, but they're to people who will now continue to follow Jesus. And what's interesting is maybe if you're in your prayer life, you really want to talk at God versus talk with him. You know, if you talk at him, what that means is you don't have time to listen to what he has to say. But you're afraid that if God actually speaks to you, he'll like yell at you or scream at you or tell you how horrible you are. Things we probably already know. But, but it's like, and, and, well, if that's the case, let me ask you, what kind of relationship do you have with your earthly father? Are you afraid to talk to them thinking that the only thing they have to say is what's wrong with you? The reason I say that is if you were to listen to what Jesus would have to say, if you really want to follow him, do you know the one thing he says here to start with? And you used to be a paralytic. You used to be powerless. You used to be possessed. You used to be crazy. You used to be a basket case. You used to be a menace to society. You used to be destructive in so many ways. You were your own smoking gun. And then Jesus turns to you now and he says, you know what you are now? You are not those things. You know you're not those things. Those things died. But do you know what you are now? You are blessed. That's what you are. You're blessed. And of all the things that I would think Jesus would say at that moment, like, now that we've cleaned up a little bit of your act, let's take it the next step and start really going after the other stuff. He starts with this. Get this through your head. You're blessed. Makarios. Makarios, by the way, the word for blessed. I mean, we like to use the word happy, but the problem is happy kind of comes off of happenings, like it's circumstantial. I, I like to use a word from California, and that's the word stoked. It looks like a state where everything's like, yeah. You know? Now understand, I wasn't born and raised in California, so when we went to plant a church there, I came from Chicago where everyone's like, hey, stupid, right? That's how they talk. And then all of a sudden, so I'm kind of figuring, you know, I, I hung out with enough people from enough places. I kind of knew that I was kind of comfortable with cultures and stuff. And I get there, and in my first Bible study, a guy comes and goes, dude, like, no, oh, the God, the God. It's like, oh. And I was like, was that interpretive dance? Was any of that English? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, he was just saying that the surf was good. I thank you. I'm going to need you as an interpreter for at least the next three months, if not more. And I, and I mean, now I, I, I kind of speak fluent. You know, he was like, oh, and then it was like, oh, and it was like, oh. But in the beginning, it was something really radical. It was weird. It was gnarly. And then I realized stoked was like, it's just good, bro. It's just good. And I can see Jesus. And I know we're like, oh, there's a white Jesus again or whatever. Like, look at who cares what color he is. 
His blood is red and it was shed for all of us. I don't care. I mean, the bottom line is no matter what color his skin was, somebody else would complain. Let's all get over it and be thankful that God clothed himself in flesh at all. I mean, he could have come in patches of every different color skin, but then everyone wouldn't go near him because he would be like a circus freak. Think that through. In the Middle East, he had to look like someone, I don't know, Middle Eastern, so people could come to him. I don't know. Kind of the way that works. I mean, this is like you're stoked. But let me tell you who's stoked, who's blessed, and why. Interesting, in this whole thing, what we're going to find is if we walk through this quickly, we're going to find this sort of a process that takes place here. And this is where it starts. Verse 3, look at it with me. The key point again is that we're blessed. If I were teachable, if I were really Jesus' disciple, I would see the fundamental change would actually happen first as well in my countenance. Could you imagine? Some of you are like that. I know, Sarah, and there are others where it's like you just the joy of the Lord kind of hits your face and really nothing can happen to change that and people look with suspicion and they don't know what in the world is wrong with you or, to be honest, right with you. And, and they kind of sit and they stare and they kind of figure and they try not to do that. And I love this. I don't know if you have this issue, Sarah, but I try to, you know, I used to bring my Bible. But what's interesting is people don't, they, they, they kind of, you know, I still do every once in a while just to let people know I still read Old Faithful. But I have all these cool Bible apps on my iPad and I've learned that people are nosy. Have you noticed that on a crowded train, they want to read what's on your iPad? So I just pick out scriptures that are gospel scriptures and I just read it over and over and over. And I kind of look around. It's amazing how many people are like, you know, and that kind of thing. You know, and so it's like, you know, you're kind of like this and you see that, so you kind of drop a little lower because I'm a little tall so other people can see it. And they're like, hey, do you want to talk about this? And they're like, hmm? Like, you know, we broke that barrier. But he's like, something should change in us. And here's the cool part. Please, 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 please hear me. The cool part is the answer is really simple. Like, Why are you like that? And you, you scramble because you know the answer, but you don't want to sound like a lunatic, right? And, you, and then you finally go, okay, uh, well, um, what's the, uh, uh, okay, okay, it's Jesus! What's that? It's Jesus! And you look weird because you've been fighting it. But if you'd have just been like, yeah, why is your day so awesome, Jesus? Oh, you're one of those. I don't know what one of those are, but you were admiring my joy a moment ago. Swallow that when you go to sleep tonight. By the way, if you want, I'll bring in other people just as weird as me. And I love that. Please, please hear me in this. It should change. When I see in Psalm 3 where it says, you're the lifter of my countenance. Do you know what that means? means I was depressed. I was bumming. And Jesus grabbed a hold of me. And now I'm like, yes. So let me just dispel a rumor so we can get through this. And I hate to say it that way, but and that is that people say, well, it's Christian walk like life. And you're like, well, it's kind of like a roller coaster up and down. Stop the nonsense. No, it isn't. You know what's up and down? Circumstances. That's what the world has. And if we actually buy that lie, people will believe we have nothing different than them. You ever been in love? I mean, like flat out, out of your mind, mental in love. You could be standing there and someone could run over your foot. You could lose a leg and you'd still smile. You're like, yeah, everything's still a song. I lost my leg, but she loves me anyways. I'll hop down the aisle. Because, man, at that moment, you're stoked. It overrides your circumstances. My dog ran away. 
You must have hated your dog. No, I love my dog. But now I could write a blues song, you know. And the reason I say that, beloved, stop buying the lie that you should only be happy when your circumstances are good. Let me say this. You were going to hell. Jesus went and crawled into your deepest depths and pulled you out. Could there be anything that can compare to that? If you've accepted that gift. And if not, you'll have the opportunity with. And then listen. So with that in mind, Jesus will say in John 8, listen to this, verse 31. He said to those who already said they believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. You've got to stay in my word, Jesus says. That's what abide means. Mene means to stay, remain. Remain in my word and you'll be my students and you will know the truth and you know the next part and the truth will set you free. I'm like, mm, the truth is going to set me free. No, listen to the vision. You've got to become a disciple for the truth to set you free. Otherwise, that information is going to be a challenge to you. So here we go. You ready? Good. Thank you for saying yes so loudly with your eyes. All right. Blessed are. Here's where it starts. Poor in spirit. Makuru will be the word that we use for all of these, by the way. And that's this word here. This word for poor. Tochos. Tochos means beggarly. It means the kind of person that asks for alms. It's the one with the cup out, with the head down. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Notice, by the way, and it's important to recognize that it's not poor in the spirit. It's poor in spirit. A definite article, I would assume, refers to the Holy Spirit, the spirit. But it doesn't say that. What it does say is poor in spirit. David, when he had sinned, fallen with Bathsheba, who, by the way, will pay fourfold for it, will cry out to God once busted, contrite, recognizing how horrible his sin was. And he says, Create in me, God, a clean heart and renew a steadfast, a right or proper spirit within me. Notice he didn't say clean my heart, but he said create in me a clean heart. David's like, my heart is so wretched, so filthy, so contaminated, so polluted Lord, I think the best thing you could do is rip this out of my chest and give me a new one. But when he says that we knew a right or proper or steadfast spirit, David wasn't possessed by some form of wicked thing other than his own sin. It was the attitude of his heart. Throughout Scripture, it'll say, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, who can know this, the, the, a man but the spirit of the man? The attitude of his own heart. And the reason I say that is, what it means to be poor in spirit is actually quite simple. It means you're just not full of yourself. There is no room for being full of yourself in the kingdom of heaven. What would you do with the kingdom of heaven if you were full of yourself? You would claim it for yourself. You would ask things. You would demand. You would make yourself the king instead of submit yourself to the one to whom the kingdom belongs. And it has to start here. And it says, if I were to empty myself of my own dignity, rights, entitlements, 
those things that we're so quick to fire back with, who do you think you are kind of stuff. If we're willing to empty ourselves, the kingdom of heaven is is ours if we'd like it. But it's only the first part of this. I have to be broken. Genuinely broken of my own death grip on me. That part where it makes me the most important thing. I've watched so many different people hold on to something so importantly that they won't humble themselves like they should. But what's interesting is where that takes us if we do it right. You know where it takes us? To mourning. Notice the second one. Blessed are those who mourn. And then we have the same word here. And the word pentuntes. Pentuntes means to wail, to beat your breast, to be in genuine grief. Now hear me in this. If I'm empty of me, I'm aware of how beggarly I am. I'm no hero. God didn't recruit me because he really wanted a superstar. God saved me. He rescued me. Because I was actually a damsel in distress, not the hero. And I mourn over the one thing that makes me so beggarly. And you know what that is? My sin. And I have to ask myself, do I really grieve over my sin or just its consequences? We sang today, and I trust you, I want to hate my sin to only love you more. I think of that often. Because what's interesting is the promise that will come with it. But please understand something here. I will never mourn like I should if I'm full of myself. I'll mourn its consequences. You know, you did something stupid and you're paying for it and you say you're sorry. And it's like, of course you're sorry. Look at how you're paying for it. You've made things miserable. How could you not be sorry? But there's a big difference between that And humbling yourself and saying, you know what? I'm willing to do whatever is necessary. And we'll see that here in a moment. Because somewhere in this, we become quite aware of how huge and monstrous our sin is. And it makes us mourn. Hey, look at any sin, if you're a Christian, is going to create issues. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian for it to create issues. It just creates a greater issue because you're in a society of people that really, to be honest, we're trying to walk away from that. We want to walk away from that. And we can't look at it and go, yeah, it's just a little thing. We look at it as a little thing, we'll find ourselves back in it. The more we see it as this huge Godzilla nasty, horrible thing, the more we'll actually hate it and not just hate its consequences. And what happens if we start to mourn? We don't just go, oh, yeah, that was a little bad. You know, yeah, it's kind of, oh, it's a little whatever. It's a little white. It's only this or whatever. Boy, I wonder how many people are freaking out over the Ashley Madison thing. What's interesting is how many, how many of those people that are Christian, let's go step beyond, how many of those people should have been freaking out well before that because they were in it in the first place? Until somebody started busting them for the Ashley Madison thing, group that still remains unnamed, until that happened, there were a bunch of people that were doing it that felt no conviction whatsoever, or at least assumedly. And now the problem is someone's going to bust them instead of the problem of them actually doing it, because we live in a society where the problem, the crime is actually getting caught not doing the crime. Isn't it true? We cannot allow that in a church. But we do that. And so we hush-hush things instead of deal with them. And what happens, beloved, is we get to this place 
when we're so fearful covering all our bases, how in the world could we possibly find comfort there? This is what Jesus says. If you're really genuinely willing to mourn over your sin, genuinely willing to mourn your beggarly issue, God will be comforting. The problem is we want comfort without mourning. And you know what comfort is without mourning? It's an addiction to numbness that will kill us. It's a, it's a spiritual leprosy is what it is. So we won't get up and share with someone because we're too comfortable on our couch. We won't get up and do the right thing. We don't want to read our word and we don't want to get on our knees and pray. And we certainly don't want to humble ourselves in front of other people and actually get real with people because that would actually have to go to step one again where we're full of ourselves. Do you realize why step one is first? It's like, you know what? I'm going to stop being so you know, collected, and I'm going to stop being so proud, and I'm going to humble myself and dance like David danced. And so that when someone goes, oh, and I, I just see that, like, you know, David comes back and he's dancing in his wife's like, oh, man, did you act like a fool in front of me? What are you doing? And David goes, you know, I, honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what he said. You think that that was embarrassing? Yeah, honey, that was appetizer. Man, we ain't even hit interval yet. But I'll tell you what, in God's servants, I'll be exalted. Could you do that? Are we too busy actually making sure everybody thinks we're awesome instead of being awesome to God? So I mourn. Interesting, the word for comfort is the word parakalejo. Maybe you're familiar with that word. Para means beside kalejo. Like we, it's also the word for comforter, comforter counselor. It's the word, by the way, for um, <clears throat> uh, when we see, like, for instance, helper, when Jesus is in Alpray and he'll give you another, he'll give you another helper. Remember, the idea of it is to be called beside someone. And I love this. Comfort wasn't God going, it's okay, Junior, things are good. It's God coming alongside someone and going, it's all right, Mike, it's all right, buddy. And that's a, that's a really big difference. But understand, God's not into doing that for something you're absolutely not mourning over. And it's interesting. You can walk with someone. I was walking with Ruthie yesterday. And I love Ruthie's so fun in regards to some of her cause. And we're walking and we see this kid and he falls down. He's like, you know, and he's, he's probably, I mean, he's a toddler. He's still napping. And he kind of, and then he looks straight at us. And as he looks straight at us, we're kind of like, uh-huh. And we keep walking and he doesn't cry at all. And I'm like, did you notice that? He kind of looked at us, and I know that if we would have gone, oh my goodness, are you okay? He would have, he would have let it rip. But because there was nobody there to do that, but we were there to say, yeah, we, we can acknowledge you, now let's get up. Now, as a result of that, he was like, oh, all right. And he got back up and he went back to his business. And I wonder how many times we're gutted because there's something that we have no right to be gutted over. And then we go to God and we're like, oh God. And God's like, get up. Mourn over your sin. Mourn over your sin, not just about how you think people might be talking about it. Mourn over your sin, not just about how you might think that this will make you uncomfortable. Mourn over your sin, because if you mourn over your sin, I'm going to come alongside you and do something about it. Don't be so busy trying to save face and lose your soul in the process. Mourn. And you're blessed when you do this. You're blessed because if you're honest and real about it, He's going to do something about it. He's going to come alongside you. Isn't that what we want? Or do we just want to make sure that we die nice on the Titanic? 
You know, guys, I want us all to play the same song and I want us to make sure. Really? You know, I don't know. One of those guys played a cello and I'm looking up thinking cellos float. That's my attitude. You can start playing, but sooner or later and you're playing on the deck. I'm like, stinks for you with the violin, but I'm staying on my, I'm staying on my cello. Anyways, you get it. Third one. So look at first, I'm not full of myself. And second, as a result of that, I mourn. I genuinely mourn over my sin. And then as a result of that, and then we have the word praetis. And the word praetis, like praos, means the word for meek literally is power under control. It is the word used of a broken cult. The cult is no less strong. It's just rainable now. A wild stallion isn't just a, anyways, isn't just something from Bill and Ted. It's an animal. It's an animal that will not be broken. You try to jump on that thing, it's going to buck you off. But sooner or later, it finds itself in a place where someone can ride it, and now all of a sudden, it's infinitely more useful for so many other purposes. But for that to happen, it has to trust its rider, and for it to trust its rider, they say we need to break the horse. Breaking the horse does not mean that you're going to break its legs. And what it means is you're going to break its spirit. That's step one, so that it's willing to surrender. Render that power to the writer. And that's our step three. The meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power in the right hands. Please hear me. Jesus is looking in and every one of these is like, you're blessed. You're stoked, guys. You know why? Of all the people, you know what it's like to be broken, not full of yourself. And you watch people walk by you not tossing anything in your top and for a reason because they were too full of themselves to do anything about it. Hey, look, can I ask you something? I have a humble request this week. I'm not asking you to give any money to anyone, but this is what I'm asking. Every time you see a person trying to sell a big issue or someone that connects eye contact with you, but they have whatever their dish is out, just ask what their name is and ask them how you can pray for them. See what that does. I have a lot of people now that are very close to me and I'm very close with. I've never given them anything other than, well, sometimes I've gotten them lunch, but I don't want to, that's not to boast on. But the issue is, is that I, I, I like to sit and go, hey, so what's your name? And I watch people cry because they're like, you know what? Everyone either avoids me or just throws something in there to keep me away. But nobody cares about who I am as a person. I'm like, oh my goodness. I just want I just want you to be reminded you're a person, you're a human being. But here's the problem. As I hand over all that power to Jesus, by the way, the power is also my rights. It's like, you know, Jesus, you can do with me as you want. If you want to embarrass me, embarrass me. If you want to humiliate me, humiliate me. If you want to take away all of the things that I think are making me look good or excel me, then you're welcome to do all of that. If in the end of it all, what you do is you use me for a greater good than I would have by myself, then and I'm going to trust you in that because I'm not going to make this about me. That was step one. And because I know that I have no right as I mourn over my sin, I say, Jesus, ride me wherever you want to. What's interesting is it says, blessed are the meek, and this is what's going to happen. They'll inherit the earth. And you already, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who wants it? 
it's the Titanic again. We're polishing it. That doesn't, you know, you know, oh yeah, there's a hole in the ozone and there's this and this. By the way, just a side note and study this on your own. Do you know what's creating, if there is a hole in the ozone at all, do you know what creates it more than anything? It's not complex fluorocarbons. It's methane. And you know where most methane is attributed from? Not this church. You could be thankful for that. Cows. And the reason I say that is if you really wanted to save the ozone, Let's have a barbecue. Anyways, forgive me. You know, I don't mean to be mean. Okay, here's the point. God promised us all the way back in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, that he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And the reason I say that is, when you inherit the earth, you're not getting this one. Praise the Lord, this one's going down. Do you want it? Revelation 21 tells us we're one chapter from the end and it tells us I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Good, the good news is you're not getting this one. This one has an expiration date and only God knows the label. But one thing's for sure. People are now, you know, 50 years ago it was the Christians saying the end of the world was near and the scientists was calling us daft. Now the scientists are saying the end of the world is near and the Christians are going, whatever, Really? Shouldn't we be saying it's about time you agree with us? But what happens when I hand over my rights? I hand over my power. I get hungry. That's our next one, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When I lay down my rights and my power, I know I'm not right. And because I know I need to be made right, I crave, I crave to do more than just deal with the symptoms. I crave to get right with the one I've really offended. Man, don't you wish that when you gave something a second look before you dove into pornography, that was when it bothered you? Don't you wish when you started taking that first sip but you knew that it was going to wind up being a six-pack, that you were convicted then? Don't you wish when that second look was given and you knew you'd end up in bed that you'd have been convicted then? Wouldn't you have loved it? Because you know what happens? People don't understand how they fell off the cliff, but they were a mile away a week ago. And they've been walking that way ever since. And now it's like, I don't understand. It was such a little step. Well, it was a whole bunch of little steps. But man, when you do that, oh my God, I realize I'm not right with you. I realize I'm not right with you because I'm not demanding my rights and I'm not demanding you fix this. What I'm, de- what I'm asking is, if you give me anything but judgment, it's grace. Man, we live in this place where God's like a bellhop. No wonder why people have a problem. When Jesus comes back, man, it's a rude awakening and it's not just for the people who have a problem with him now, but for those who aren't willing to take him for who he is, even in the churches. The word fulfilled, by the way, the word cortazzo, cortazzo means to be satisfied. Now I know what it's like to eat a meal and go, that was lovely. And then I know what it's like to go to Italy. Where you have a meal and you're like, oh, that was amazing. And they're like, oh, that was the appetizer. That was prima. I'm like, prima. Wait for secundi. And I know that means seconds. I'm like, seconds of the same? Oh, no, it's a whole new dish and you start all over again. I mean, by the time they're offering you pistachio stuff and at the end and all that, you're like sweating pasta. 
And I know what it's like at that moment. It's like, you know, when you're well, at least this is me. Forgive me. And I, hopefully you don't have a sin of gluttony. But, you know, it's like where you actually have to do something like adjust your belt. So some of you are laughing because you all know. Brazilian barbecue, you come in stretchy pants. And when you're done, you just lay there in this like glorious food coma. And you're like, if the Lord took me right now, this would be such a great moment. You know, I'm like miserable and so happy at the same time. One of the first things I learned in Italian was, Io sono felice, ma io sono grosso. I'm happy, but I am fat. That's the word that's used here. God's not dishing out a, feel pardon me for saying, you go, a sort of French restaurant version of righteousness. Where you're like, it's a lovely art piece. Where's the food? You know, that little piece in the middle with the balsamic on this. You know, like, you know God's like, Vush! He's like an American barbecue. You come in, you're like, whoa, stoked. But if you're full of yourself, if you don't mourn your sin, you'll never see how big this meal is. If you do not hand over your rights to God, you'll never see how great this meal is. You'll never be hungry to be right if you're busy putting plasters on your personality and your, your ML. But this is the one that, that, I mean, up to this point, you really can't see anything in another person until this one. This is where the rubber starts meeting the road for us, and we're almost done, believe it or not. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When somebody really does come and say they're really horribly sorry for their sin, and they see it as big, they're not downplaying it. They're not saying, well, it was a little, or putting whatever qualifications in it. And not only like they have to come to me for it, but unless I'm in, somehow it directly affects me. But it's like, you know, where you're, you're kind of like, Pastor, I just, you know, I, I need them taking this to the Lord. And it's like, how do they deal with people they think have wronged them from that point on? And Jesus gives this story. But I want you to hear it from that perspective because that's the perspective he uses in Matthew 18. And this is the way it works. Maybe many of you have heard it before. Jesus says that there, were this, there was this guy and he owed 10,000 talents. So this side, would you say 10,000 talents? 10, talents? So how much did the guy owe? 10, talents. Thank you. Now all of you, how much did he owe? 10, talents. Bam. Right? And so he got called in. He got called in because what was clear is he was in debt. The master called him in. And he called in and he said, hey, so you owe me. And he asked for mercy. He said, please be patient with me and I'll pay all of it. I'll do everything you ask. And the guy was moved. He was like, wow, okay, well, I'll tell you what. The master, being aware that there's no possible way this could be paid back, said, you know, the only proper, I'm going to go way beyond all of that, beyond mercy to grace, and I'm going to forgive you your debt. How much did he forgive? How much did he forgive? 
Now, you know, I know either you're so enwrapped in the story or okay. But as he walks out of the place, it says, listen, but the servant, this is by verse 28, he says he found one of those people in his servants who owed him 100 denarii. Would you say 100 denarii? Oh, thanks, you guys. Okay, 100 denarii. And listen what it says. And it says he laid hands on him, took him by the throat. said, pay me what you owe me. And you know what the guy said? The exact same words that guy did. Oh, please be patient with me and I'll pay you it all. The guy's like, no way. So he threw him in the, so he, so he threw him and said, all right, you're going to have to work all that off. The problem is, the first guy, the first master, heard about it. But he's already forgiven the debt. Does he have a right to inflict the full order of the law now? Well, he calls him back in. Listen to what he says. The master called him in and he said, You wicked servant. Any of you want to hear those words from God? You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt and you begged me. Because you begged me, I forgave you. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? So the master then inflicted the full order of the law on him then. Threw him in to be tortured until he could pay the whole debt. Here's the problem. You're like, yeah, I don't pay in talents and denarii anymore. Right? So what's the difference? Well, let's start on this side. How much did the guy owe the first servant? 100 denarii. A denarii is actually a fairly simple thing. It's a day's wage. So that seems like a lot of money. So if you think about it, what that means is, that is 100 days wages. Are you with me on that? Yeah, that's a substantial amount until we get to the talent part. One talent equals 6,000 denarii. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And how many denarii did he owe? 10,000. Can anyone do the math? 60 million denarii. Now, he owes 60 million days wages. Even if he was Methuselah, he couldn't pay that back. He's like, please be patient. I'll pay you it all. Really? I'll wait. You know what? Go ahead. Just write it off. Please hear me. God's kindness, God's mercy, and God's grace does not mean he's willing to make little the debt. It means he's willing to pay for the gigantic debt it was. And the only way you can see is when that person turns and they think someone else has offended them and how they respond. And if they respond by recruiting other people or speaking evil of them or doing something when they should have said, you know what, great mercy and grace has been shown me today and I think I should do that with everybody else in my life. Okay, so you said something or you did something or whatever. Oh my goodness, really? Because the moment that you start seeing that, you start, and I, what I get from this is that somewhere in it, what you start seeing is, well, that person really doesn't think they've really been forgiven of much. Somehow they kind of thought that 60 million and 100 were kind of the same thing. And so we look and look at, Jesus forgave me 
of an infinitely greater debt than this. And then I look at somebody else and I want to be angry at them for something because they've done something to me that I've done in the name of God or I've done actually against God. How can I do that? And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. But man, you start looking at other people that way and all it says is that you're back to square one and you're still full of yourself. You're still full of yourself so much where while the debt is being forgiven, and imagine what it would be like, the guy standing there before the guy going, please have mercy on me. I know I owe 60 million denarii. And while the person is dealing grace and mercy upon them, all they could think at that moment is, I can't believe that guy didn't pay me back. That's what they're thinking at a moment like that? I can't believe that. I can't believe that's where they were when all the time great grace is being poured here and they can't even see the great grace because all they can think about is somebody else and how they were a party to it. You really think, really? Really? If you weren't in debt 60 mil, that guy not paying you, you it, would, it wouldn't matter. And here's the, here's the issue, you guys. When somebody comes in here and they don't know Jesus, somebody comes in here and they're trying to figure out whether this Jesus thing is real, and they look at how we treat each other. And what they see is this backbiting and this kind of weird stuff, and it's all about this. It's like, you know, why in the world would they want that? Why would they think Jesus is real if that's what they see? When it gets that complicated... And what we should be is so overwhelmed with gratitude for what he's done for us that we should be overflowing with kindness to each other. Hey, the lost, we should expect them to be, I don't know, lost. And the saved, we should expect them still to be sinners saved by grace. So this is how it ends. I go from this place of issuing mercy, and you know what you start seeing is a purity of heart. I'm empty of myself. I've surrendered it all. I've sought to be made right. God has made me right. And because I recognize that great mercy, I'm offering that mercy to other people. And I don't even see it as mercy because it's so small in comparison. And God says, you know, if you're really willing to let that happen. And this word for purity, by the way, for what it's worth, is the word that means to be cataterized. It means to be purified by fire. God's like, you know, it's like, you know, blessed are those who are just their hearts been in the fire. And because of that, all of that pollution's been driven out because we're not hiding it. We're not kind of putting some kind of conspiracy theory together now. We've laid the whole thing out and we're issuing mercy to other people. And as a result of that, God says, you really want to see me? You've got to see me on my agenda, not on yours. And there are people that are like, well, God just has to receive me for who I am. Because, you know, after all, you know, like, you know, this is who I am. And it's like, but if you're not willing to let him be Lord, you're not receiving. God for who he is and he's like only the pure in heart are going to see me but if you're going to be that way and you see me how could you not want to make peace with people and that's the next so empty of my self-righteousness empty of my entitlements empty of what I think how in the world who you are who are you to say this empty of like well listen I need to I, I, I need to figure out how to manipulate this thing to my benefit I'll seek to make peace with others by humbling myself not trying to figure out what they think is wrong and how I need to tell them why they're wrong for it listen the only way we make right with people is by telling them we're wrong 
We don't try to figure out why they're wrong. Voice it so they can go and apologize to us first. First, we need to ask ourselves because we get this crazy idea that they're the plank and we're the speck. But Jesus makes clear we get this crazy disproportionate thing where we kind of look at our own sin like it's tiny, like somehow we're the one that owed the little. But then we look at everyone else like they owed all those mills. But a peacemaker is somebody who seeks to make right with someone by humbling themselves. Not recruiting for my cause. Because that's what a son of God looks like. A son of God looks like somebody that's trying to bring people to God. Because they know how amazing it is to be forgiven. You know what happened is we got infected. And because we got infected, we became contagious. The last result of that. And by the way, the only command we have in this whole text so far. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word, by the way, dioko is the word that means made to flee. Somebody actually kind of makes your life so miserable. You're running. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. He says, blessed are when they revile you. And the word for revile, for what it's worth, means to shame you. But it isn't that they just shame you. It isn't just that they persecute you or say all kinds of evil against you. It's that they do it falsely for Jesus' sake. Hey, you do something stupid and somebody actually shames you for it, don't say you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're a jerk and somebody has a problem with you, don't say that you're being persecuted for Jesus' name. The Lord doesn't need any giant jerks for Jesus. And here's the command. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Because great your reward in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The only command in this whole thing, remember, listen what he said. He said, you're blessed, 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 you're stoked, 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 you're stoked. So rejoice and be seemingly glad. The problem is why? Imagine, by the time we get to the Luke, the gospel in Luke, it'll actually say jump for joy. Could you imagine? Someone's persecuting you, and they'll tell us, by the way, those that fall away because of persecution because of the word. Could you imagine that? The thing is, is that if they have a problem with Jesus, but they love you, shouldn't that concern us? They're like, I hate Jesus, but I like you. I'd be, I would think, well, I failed. Do you really think we can do it better than him? So he's looking at what they do. is like, you know what? We're going to go out and we're going to get wasted. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not inviting you, man. You, you just can't come. Why? Because you know, you're like Christian and all that stuff. Can you imagine if you went, what? They'd be like, what? what was wrong with you, man? Like, well, the problem you had was you saw Jesus in me. Oh, you know, we're going to go do this. We're going to do this thing, but you're just going to want to talk about God. Wow. I wish that were the case, that all I want to talk about is God. But thank you for noticing. You know? Or someone goes, hey, I heard this really funny joke. Oh, never mind. You wouldn't laugh at it anyways. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Imagine, right? And that's the smallest part of persecution. When we talk about it, by the way, in Luke, what it'll say is when they ostracize you. Do you know what that means? It means they leave you out. Hey, don't you want to be invited to something so you could say no instead of have them not invite you at all? 
Maybe sometimes the Lord doesn't let you get invited because though you thought you'd say no, you wouldn't. And you do that whole little inch thing, right? You're like, well, I'm going to go to the party, but I'm going to not drink, right? I'm going to be like a witness. And the way I'm going to be a witness is I'm going to not do stuff. So people are like, oh, I want to be a Christian because look, at you're not drinking. Oh, that's going to really save a whole bunch of people. Hey, we're all going to go and get jiggy with it, but she ain't going to go get jiggy with it. So I want to be a Christian so that I really, that's where we're going to go with it. And then they don't invite us, and God's like, I just did you a favor. You're like, but I was going to say no. And they're like, God's like, you're telling me you really think you know better than I do about what you're going to say. He goes, look it, in the end of it all, please hear me. Hey, look it, Bruno will play football, and there are several of you who play football. If Bruno wanted to be pro, it's one thing to go and actually have a couple sponsors. Maybe someone buys him some shoes and he gets to play and he gets to go on. I mean, he's single right now and that's not an investment. He didn't pay me for that. And, you know, in all that, and he gets to play and he kind of gets to do something he really likes. But if he really wants to be great, he wants to make his way to Premier. Is that about right? Did I do that right? That, yeah, Premier League. And so what happens is ultimately what happens is he's going to know he's improving by the way that his opposition steps up. I mean, in the first couple of leagues, you got, you know, it's like, you ever watch kids when they're learning how to play football, right? It's like, you know, in the beginning, there's like a couple of kids and they're kicking each other and someone else is chasing after the ball and someone's sitting there picking flowers, right? That's how it starts. And then it gets a little more intense as things get on, right? And as it gets on sooner or later, we start seeing slide tackles and you start seeing some other things. People are actually dribbling and, and they're trying to do plays and they're trying to work their way over and they actually, people have positions now. I mean, it's like it's different now. It isn't just everyone running around and trying to kick something. The ball or other things. And the, and the reason I say that is, as it improves, the opposition improves. But sooner or later, when you get to the top, it's no time for sitting around barefoot picking flowers. you got to be serious now. But if that was your goal, you'd be like, man, I would know that as the opposition kind of intensifies, something good is happening. Now, I'm not talking about you being a jerk and people are rising up because of it. I'm talking about you are actually seeking to do well, and because of that, People that are that good should be in leagues that good. And he goes, look it, when people start crawling in your grill and they start kind of saying stuff about it, God obviously knows you deserve the kind of level where that kind of stuff is. There's goals being scored because of that. But if I'm empty of myself and I hand over my rights and my power to God, and as I do that, I'm hungry to be right with him, and I'm issuing mercy, and I see how amazing it is to be forgiven. My eyes are on eternity. Now all of a sudden, I want to score different goals than before. I don't want to just feed someone. I don't want to just give someone food. Now I want them to know Jesus, because they could die fat. They could die well, but in the end of it, all, it's like, you know, you could have all your, your vitamins, and you're all that, and you're jogging, but as you're jogging to pick up your vitamins, you get run over by a bus, you're still dead. And the reason I say that is in the end of it all, we get to this point where we start seeing things from an eternal perspective. And from an eternal perspective, I know at least in my case, you can decide for yourself, there are going to be moments I was so full of myself, I didn't affect eternity like I could have. Because I was too busy trying to keep face. Not serious about my sin. And yet he says, you know what? If fear of persecution keeps me from representing, I'm already too full of myself to do it. Where I came from, they used to say, either you representing or you perpetrating. Jesus would say it this way, either you're for us or against us. It's pretty simple. There's no free agents in this. But here's the good news. I want to be blessed. I want to live a blessed life. Nobody full of themselves 
full of their own opinions, full of their own things. They're happy. They're not even happy, nonetheless blessed. So as we pray, let me ask you, where are you at on this? Maybe you think that you're the best thing you've got to hold on to. Well, then, man, you have not met my Jesus. The moment Jesus showed me who he really was, I was glad to let me go. Man, I was glad to let me go. And because of that, man, I've looked at some of the things that the Lord has just given us the, the privilege of walking through. Some of them very challenging things. And I've been so thankful that somehow my coach knew that he could put me in that kind of play. Now, some of it, it hasn't been that at all. I've just been stupid and I've put myself in bad place. But please hear me. There are times where, the, where my coach looks and he says, you know what? I want you in there at this moment. My God emptied himself of all the glory of eternity and came and clothed himself in human flesh, taking on, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient even to death on the cross. Show me how he didn't do this. He mourned, and you know what he mourned over? My sin, because he had none of his own. Hey, there have been moments in this 25 years I've had the privilege of serving him where I, I, I know I'm mourning more over someone's sin than they are. My wife says every hair that I've lost has come from something like that. Now, it may be male, male pattern balding, but we're going to call it that just the same. I want to hate my sin as much as I hate other people's sin. Where it does humble me, and I genuinely do mourn. And because of that, I crave to be made right with the one who I really have offended and every other person I've affected because of it. And when that happens, beloved, God says, I just want to bless you. I just want to bless you. I want to come alongside you and comfort you. I want to let you know this is your kingdom now. I want to let you know you'll see me. And I have a reward for you in heaven so great. And I think you're going to be like so thankful. Look at, even if you lived a hundred years on this planet, it doesn't compare to eternity from this point forward. And then it's like, you imagine, it's like, imagine if you had the greatest budget here, but you were a pauper in heaven and you thought for this period of, this tiny period of time, I sought to be well taken care of and maintained by my own hand when I could have actually really watched God bring rewards for eternity. Christians, remember how this started? Jesus sat. And we either were happy that Jesus dealt with our little issue or we came forward to let him change every part of us. Not just the thing that got us there in the first place. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or you're not sure, as we pray now, I'm going to invite you to unashamedly receive the gift Christ paid on the cross for you. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that the only command you've given us in these 12 verses is to rejoice and be exceedingly glad.
And that's already being at a state of blessed. Of blessedness. And I confess to you that I have been at times more concerned with my appearance than with really making sure that I'm right from the inside out. But I recognize that was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. And you had lots of problems with them. So here in this room, Lord, I recognize that that if at least for if nobody other than me, I, I'm confessing to you, God, I don't want to love anything that hates you. First and foremost, my vanity and pride. I don't want to be so concerned with what others may think of me that I'm less concerned with what you may. But I recognize it starts by coming to you and saying, Lord, now this isn't about, you're not a means to the end, you are the end. And with that, I'm going to follow you where you lead. And as you lead me, Lord, I'm not doing that so that I could be blessed. But I know that as I do that, I will be. So not full of myself. Mourning over my sin. God, I don't want to live in a constant state of that, but Lord, to look back and never relish the pit and monstrous nastiness of my own sin and self-reliance. And Lord, I recognize that as I lay down my heart, my life, my pride, my strength, whatever it be before you, hungry for you to make me right in every way, not just, Lord, practically or I should say positionally, as I know you did on the cross the moment I said yes, but in every way so that as I look at others, I look at them with, pride, with right propriety in regards to the proportion of sin that I have versus others, but in that, Lord, that I would be clear to make wise choices and to deal where mercy need be given, to deal with great mercy. But please, Lord, let it be in my own life and even in the lives that I deal with. May it never be confused as somehow it was little. But rather, if I see the sin as little, I will see the forgiveness as little as well. But if I see how huge the deficit I stood before you and others would stand before you with, we would see that we wouldn't just call it grace, we would call it, as it's been sung, amazing grace. And I realize today, I don't think we're amazed anymore by your grace. And for that, God, I just pray you recircumcise our hearts and forgive us for numbing ourselves, looking for comfort instead of mourning. It's your job to comfort. It's our job to be serious. And in that, God, as we look at others, may we issue that mercy. Recognizing that as we do, we will be persecuted. But that's because people have a problem with you. And we're looking like you. So rend our hearts and deal with them rightly. And here in this room, if there be anyone who has not said yes to Jesus Christ, maybe you're not sure, you can be sure now. I'm going to pray a prayer I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, 
I'm a sinner. I am wrong. And I stand before you in debt because of it. But you so love me. You sent your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on my on the cross that I deserved. Help me to see my sin as deserving that type of punishment. And in that God, as he died on that cross, just like scripture promised, my, my, my bill was paid. And as it was paid, he died, was buried. And just like scripture promised, he rose again to not just pay for all my debts, but to give me a brand new life, a life where I am now blessed. Not as a calling, but as a lifestyle, I'm blessed. So, I openly confess my need for Jesus, confessing Him as my Savior, my ransom. But in handing over my life, I confess Him as my resurrected Lord, the leader of my life now. As I lay before you myself, lead me now to transform the world and use me as a tool for such. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.